If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this uh, morning, you can find uh, Exodus chapter 5 as we continue in our series, uh, Journey to Freedom. In Exodus chapter 5, Journey to Freedom. It was on this day, 24 years ago, that uh, I traveled up to Britt, Iowa, and uh, took a young widow out for our very first date. And uh, after which we went to a town, we wanted to get away from everybody. We didn't want anybody to know what we were doing. We didn't do anything wrong. But, uh, but God started putting our hearts together. I can remember taking her home and Marilyn uh, turning in the passenger seat with her back up against the door. And she had her, she had her arms crossed. She said, well, Pat, are we going to do this again? And I said, I want to. And she said, you need more time. And I said, hey, if God's in this, who needs more time? And it was really more of a a reflection of my desire than it was a spiritual comment. And now, of course, you know, God knows and you know what time is done. 24 years ago, that's uh, when God put, Meryl and I started putting our hearts together. And... uh, When it comes to this story in the book of Exodus, it's time. It's time for Moses to obey God and go to Egypt and confront the Pharaoh. And this is a hard message. I'm going to be really honest with you. As we're talking about Egypt, the very first trip I ever led to Israel, we actually connected with a group that had just come out of Egypt that was connecting with our group. And they were literally fit to be tied. They were furious. They had, they had experienced horrible accommodations in Egypt, hotels and food and everything else. And they just assumed their experience in the promised land, the leg that I was leading, would be the same. In fact, they demanded that their money be given back and flown back to the States. It took the director three hours to talk him off that ledge and... Uh, and experience the better leg in the promised land. Now Moses' task, he's been tasked to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. But they've been there 400 years. They're really used to Egypt. And as we'll see time and again, they wanna, their default is to go back. Back to Egypt. Back to the place that represents sin represents destruction, represents death, represents enslavement. Egypt is mentioned nearly 700 times in the Old Testament alone, 25 times or so in the New Testament. The only place that's mentioned more is the promised land, Canaan. Because Egypt, I just want you to, just to kind of give you an outline before we read, Egypt is a picture of the place of sin. And some of you are living in your own personal Egypt right now. That's what's going to make this a hard message. Pharaoh in the story is a picture of the person of sin, Satan. The burdens that he heaps upon God's people is a picture of the pain of sin. And what happens when you are in a place that's called by the writer of Proverbs, hard And finally, the Israelites in Egypt are a picture of the problem of sin. 
The problem of sin is that sin by its own nature deceives us into thinking not a bad place to stay. So with that in mind, Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, about two million, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their uh, foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, they, you, you shall impose upon them, and you shall by no means reduce them, for they are idle. Therefore they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words." So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each of you, and when there was, uh, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel uh, whom Pharaoh ta uh, Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were, and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making the bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Apparently they weren't keeping up with the quota. Then the foreman of the people of Israel cried, uh, came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is on your, your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. But you must deliver the same number of bricks. The former of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. They came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why, do you, uh, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh, you speak... Uh, to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. From this passage of scripture this morning, I want to give you four pictures, four pictures of the dreadful realities of choosing to live as some of you are right now in this room or listening or watching a sinful place. 
Four pictures of those dreadful realities of choosing to live in a sinful place. Just to let you know right out of the shoot, this is not a Joel Olstein approved message, okay? Just to let you know. The first thing you need to know, it is a picture. Egypt is a picture of the place of sin. And as we'll see, and some of you already know, their default, as with some of you, is to keep going back to Egypt, to keep going back there, to that comfortable place, albeit a place of sin. Now, right away, Moses comes in, and he says to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Now, where'd that boldness come from? I was reminded of when I was a kid, I was about 10 years old, and the neighborhood bully had pushed my friend Doug and I up against the garage, not 100 feet from my home, but there was nobody in my house milling around outside. And I was scared. He was threatening to punch us. And uh, I was sizing him up at the same time, thinking I could take him, but I wasn't sure. Suddenly, my brother Mike, four years older than me, shows up. And I literally tore into this bully, all the way up the alley, into the yard, and I whipped him. My brother Mike later told me I wasn't going to do anything. I just was watching. But I'm telling you, his presence is what helped me win that fight. And it was the presence of God in Moses' life, along with all those miracles he'd done through the staff, that emboldened him. And it does take courage, doesn't it, to speak to a world that hates your message? Would you agree with that? Last spring, my, before the, the rains came, my lawn looked atrocious. And somebody put a door hanger on the door of our home telling me of his services and he listed all the weeds that he had found walking around my yard. I was incensed. I thought to myself, I, I thought to myself dude, dude, do you realize how hard I've been working to get those weeds out of my yard? All the pulling, all the weeding, all the watering I've been doing? What nerve, what, what the heck do you, who the heck do you think you are walking onto my yard and looking at my weeds and calling me out for them? Of course, he wasn't listening. I was talking to a, you know, a thing on my door. And my reaction didn't change my problem. I still had the weeds in the yard. They still had to be dealt with. And it sort of, it sort of hit me. It's like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I do in the spiritual realm. I'm always walking onto people's yards and pointing out their weeds. And I expected him to say, oh, well, thank you so much for pointing out all my sins. I'll change them now. But it does take courage to speak to a world that hates your message but needs to hear it, right? Satan hates it when we enter into his Egypt, the place of sin, in order to extract individuals who are bound and slave there, like some of you. Remember what Pharaoh says? Who is the Lord? Who is the, and this is where we, Yahweh, that's the word, it, Yahweh is probably how it's pronounced. We don't really know how it's pronounced. We don't know how this word was pronounced, the word Lord. In fact, he, he, but notice he says, who is the Lord? He doesn't know him. Most unbelievers, I would just want you to know, are Bible illiterates. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the Lord. The Egyptians considered Pharaoh a god. Amongst two, their pantheon of gods, they had like 2,000 of them, and we'll be running into them in the days to come. 
They were polytheists, believers of many gods. And Moses is about to take on that pantheon of gods, but not just yet. By the way, rabbinical legend tells us that when Moses came in and said, thus saith the Lord, let, us, let my people go, Pharaoh then turned to 70 advisors and said, hey, look into the annals of our history and see if we can find this Yahweh guy. And they turned and said, no, we, we, we can't find him in our record books. And that's why if you follow the text, Moses refers to him as the, quote, God of the Hebrews in verse three. In other words, you're not gonna find him in your record books. And just, to, just so that you know, Unbelievers are ignorant of spiritual truth. That's important for you to know that so that you don't get overly frustrated. The place of sin is a place of ignorance. Look, look at what uh, the Apostle Paul says in, in uh, Ephesians chapter four. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Watch this. They're darkened in their what? understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They're ignorant. Unbelief has ignorance attached to it. So Moses refers to God as the God of Hebrews. He doesn't try to impress the Pharaoh not right away anyway. He doesn't call him, he doesn't say he's the God of the heavens and the earth, the moon and the stars and the Nile. He doesn't try to challenge Pharaoh's polytheism by saying that Yahweh is the true creator of all these things. He simply refers to himself as the God of the Hebrews. To Pharaoh, the Hebrews were one thing. Stuff. Parts. Lowly, parts like, like parts in a car. When you're done using them, they just, you chuck them. They don't, they're worthless. But to those of us who know the living God, the God of the Hebrews is the one who represents the one who loves us, who identifies with lowly, with hurting, with burdened, with sinful, with those of you who are longing for freedom from Egypt, from your own personal Egypt that you're in right now. Pharaoh doesn't just say, who is the Lord? He says, I do not know the Lord. See that? Which really tells you everything you need to know. Not just with the pharaohs of this world, but everyone that doesn't know God. Remember, in, second, in 1 Samuel, there is a priest. His name is Eli. He's a godly man, but he's rather undisciplined. He's got a couple of sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are not godly. They're messing around with women, sleeping with women, indulging themselves in every act, uh, you know, excess imaginable. And he's very frustrated with his sons, but the text itself tells us why they were doing it. Here's what it says. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Watch it. They did not what? Didn't know the Lord. I talked to somebody just the other day at a business and uh, interacting with them. And they, I said, are you a Christian? Well, I, I think so. I said, well, what makes you think you're a Christian? Well, I prayed. I was at this event, and I prayed. And, and I said, what about your life? I don't know. And then they just, just unraveled their life, which has been filled with deception and immorality. What do you, am I a Christian? She asked. I said, well, here's what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Or don't you know that Christ Jesus lives in you? That is, unless you fail the test. Have you ever read that? I told her to test herself because everything I'm looking at says it ain't real. Listen, if you're swimming in a sea of filth, it's because you're filthy. And you're going to drown. You're going to drown in your own personal filth forever unless you turn to the greater Moses who will extract you from your Egypt of sin, the place of sin. You want to know why the politicians and government and whole states in our own union are turning from God pell-mell and his laws? It's really simple. They don't know God. That's why. And just about the time I'm about ready to go into an apoplectic rage over one politician, you know, in the recent debates, you know, stumbling over the other to exalt one form of filth or another, I, I got to calm down and I got to remember they don't know. They don't know. And that lifts up my, my sympathies, my compassion. Philip Reichen is right when he says unbelief is partly an intellectual problem. And he's right. Paul wrote, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are moronic to him. Neither can he know them, because spiritual things are spiritually understood. Have you ever read that? It is at least, as Reichen says, in part an intellectual thing, but that also makes it a spiritual problem. Not just an intellectual problem, but even more than that. Unbelief is a satanic problem. That brings us to our second picture. Pharaoh. He depicts the person of sin, the devil himself, both relentless and ruthless. Now remember, here's this dialogue. Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. I don't, who's the Lord? I don't even know him. And you're keeping our people from working. There's a, there's a couple of million of them and, and you're making them go lazy and so he doubles down on all that they have to do. Moses should have thought when he heard this, well, this is kind of what God said was going to happen. Because in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that's exactly what God said. But imagine, news travels fast. Moses is there. The people, when we left off in chapter 4, the people are excited. Their deliverer has come. News travels fast. They, 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 they're believing they're going to be taken out now anytime. They're kind of like the guy who's been told you're going to get laid off in a week. He's not really productive for that next week, right? Some of you can probably relate to that. So Pharaoh piles on the burden. Listen, Pharaoh is a picture of Satan, and Satan hates authority. He hates authority. He's the one, we're told in Isaiah, that desired to be like God because he didn't want to be under God. And even in this, there's something subtle, and you can miss it if you're not seeing it, but in the very first verse, you can look at it, Moses comes in and says, thus says the what? But yet, how does Pharaoh respond in verse 10? Thus says Pharaoh. In other words, this is, yeah, you know, I'm sticking it to you. This Yahweh's not in charge. I'm in charge here. And I want you to hear this very carefully, very clearly, Take it to heart. Satan wants to control you. And some of you are thinking, well, yeah, but I'm not a Christian, so we can't do it. Stop lying to yourself. 
It doesn't matter who you are. Satan desires to master you. Let me show that to you. Let me prove that to you from the same chapter in the same context with two completely different individuals. Here is the Lord Jesus on the night he would be betrayed, eventually taken, and hung on a cross. Chapter 22 and 3 of Luke, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. That's pretty eerie, isn't it? And we know that Judas was a betrayer. We know he didn't know God. We know where his destiny is. A permanent Egypt forever in hell. Same context, different person, the apostle Peter, a lover of Jesus, albeit one that was struggling in the moment, Here's what Jesus said to him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded or asked for you, very strong word, to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Just stare at that for a moment. And we know that he gets to have Adam for a while. Now Jesus goes on and said, I prayed for you. Once you're restored, you know, minister to the brethren. But here's the point. It doesn't matter whether you are friend or foe of God. Satan wants you and me. And look, if you won't fear God, you should at least fear Satan because he's trying to get control of you, no matter who you are. And some of you are living in Egypt. Some of you have come out of Egypt, but you're taking the path right back just like the Israelites would consistently do. Here's a third picture. The picture of their burdens that heaps upon them. It's a picture of the pain of sin. Mark it down. If you are a follower of Jesus and you seek help from beneath rather than above, plan on working twice as hard. If you're a follower of God but you seek the help of the world, plan to work twice as hard. The building of these pyramids was a little bit... A little bit like a factory. The company was Egypt supplying the straw. The straw was the binding agent, that, you know, like re-rod, keeping the brick together. And Pharaoh made the Jews, by the way, archaeology tells us that the Pharaohs then, before and after, they, that's exactly what they did. When somebody was slacking, they would double down. They'd make them work harder. So this was in keeping with their own traditions. The slaves were like machines, you know, on the assembly line. So now rather than the slaves waiting upon the straw to come to them by the company, they had to go out and find it. And verse 12 says they went all over Egypt. Imagine that. By the way, what a brilliant, what a brilliant response from the enemy, Pharaoh. And this, remember, he's a picture of Satan. What a brilliant response from the enemy. Making them keep their quota by making them keep their quota, that would not only exhaust them, but it would exasperate them. Once utterly exasperated, they would cry out for mercy from Pharaoh and the head of Moses. Get the people to despise their leader? I'm halfway to putting down the resistance. But sin is truly a hard taskmaster, is it not? And those of you who have decided to go back there to Egypt or you're still just stuck there, you need to listen to what the writer of Proverbs said. Solomon said, 
The way of the unfaithful is what? Say it. Say it again. It's hard. And some of you are there now. Trying to make bricks without straw. If you're in Egypt, choosing to live in the place of sin, ignoring God, all of his admonitions to you, that's a hard place to be. And by the way, when I say you're in Egypt, don't be thinking, oh, he's just talking about people living in immorality, doing unethical things. I'm talking about you who are just just lazy, so-called Christians. You might not even be Christians. I'm talking about the, the hard place of sin that some of you have chosen to live in. There's a fourth picture I want to point out here, and that's the picture of the Israelites, because this is where this becomes very practical. The problem of sin is that sin, by, its, by definition and by design, is a deceiver. That's why James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, what? Deceiving what? Deceiving yourself. You never deceive anybody else until you deceive yourself. Sin by its own nature is a deceiver. And it deceives us into looking for answers from below rather than answers from above. Seeking wisdom from below rather than wisdom from above. Seeking riches below rather than riches from above. And it was natural for these individuals, as they do, to cry out to Pharaoh. Did you see that? They cry out to Pharaoh. He's got them now. They're crying out to me. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to cry out, not to God. Get your help from somebody else. Listen. Listen carefully. Pharaoh won't bring you relief. All he has to offer you is straw, and sometimes not even that. It grieves me when I see Christians who've been delivered from the greatest threat of all, hell, then cry out for help from the very system that enslaved them to begin with. You go to the government for help, you go to the lawyers for help, you go to you know, psychology for help, you go to the world for help, you go to finance for help. Somebody will pay your way through. I don't need to trust in God. Just the other day, a friend of mine that uh, I work with in another state, he told me, and he's, it's really cool, he's a pastor in a church, several hundred people, and he's, he's really had to grind it out in his own life. He told me, he said, Pat, he said, my dad is a, my dad is a multimillionaire. He goes, here's the deal. I never knew it until just a couple of years ago. He goes, my dad became a Christian when he was a young man and radically dedicated his life to the Lord. And he realized in raising his kids, it was not smart to just give them everything. So he never told us that he was accumulating wealth. He made us earn everything. He made us learn how to cry out to God for help and, have our, and, and watch God meet our needs. And he was telling one story after another where God has met his needs. He said he had serious riches waiting for him on earth, but his wise earthly father taught him from his youth to seek greater riches and never revealed to him that he had those earthly riches until he knew his son 
was in a place where he could receive that kind of information. I said to him, boy, with, you know, with, uh, with this knowledge, you could start laying up treasures on earth if you choose to set your heart on them. But he knew better. He knew better because he knew that was the road back to Egypt. I think it's interesting that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, talking to the Corinthians, he talks about building on the foundation of Christ. There's only one foundation, it's Jesus, right? 1 Corinthians 3. And uh, he says, you know, you, can, you have the option to put on that foundation whatever you want to put. You can put things that last, things like gold and silver and precious stone, not literally, but that is speaking of eternal things. Or you could, put, you could build things that will burn up, like wood and hay. And then it really captured my attention. The third thing was, I thought, why would he throw straw in there? I wonder if he was thinking about this story here. Stuff that burns up. Pharaoh's not going to meet your needs. He's just going to give you straw, and sometimes not even that. In a business meeting recently, our church voted to repave the surface of a local business where we've been parking on Sundays for years. A lot of fun. God brought some gifts in so that we could do it. And as I was thinking about that story, I thought about my friend Vince Sacento. Vince, is, Vince uh, led Vince to Christ many years ago, Italian dude. And uh, we just had a great friendship. And he would get cancer and die. But he loved telling jokes. He came to me one day and said, hey, pastor, did you hear about the guy that was a, that was a multimillionaire? Uh, and he had a whole bunch of gold and he died and went to heaven. He, he knew Jesus and, and he tried to bring his gold bullion into, the, into heaven. And he meets Peter at the, at the gates of heaven. He says, hey, hey, I'd like to come in. Just, just bring this one suitcase, which was full of gold bullion. And Peter says, no, you came in. The only thing we get is the, you know, the only thing that lasts from earth is the word of God and the souls of men. You're just going to have to come in like you are. No, no, please, please, just let me bring this one suitcase in. To which Peter then opens up the suitcase and goes, oh, paving. Yeah, you can bring that in. My friend's walking on that paving today. Will you? Not if you're stuck in Egypt. All of us in this room and watching and listening, all of us are going one direction or another. Either to Egypt, the place of sin and death, and hell, or the promised land, the place of forgiveness and life and heaven. What direction are you really heading? We have a saying around here, paths lead to places. I don't know the place you're heading all I can do is judge by the path that you're on. And when I look at some of your paths, they don't look like they're going to a good place. Some of you are still stuck in Egypt, the place of sin. 
Some of you are on a path heading back to Egypt, just like the Israelites had a tendency to do. And of course, there are many of you who have found the right path. Jesus said, choose the right path. He says, enter into the narrow gate, for narrow is the gate and broad is the path that leads to Egypt, destruction. But then there's the narrow gate, enter into that. It's a hard way, he says, but it will lead to life and forgiveness, and joy, and all of that stuff that has escaped you. And it's escaped you because you're so used to living in Egypt. And I am so burdened for some of you. I'm so burdened for you. Some of you don't know God. You think you do because you've prayed some prayer. But the path you're on still looks like the one that's going to Egypt. I'm telling you now, turn around. Believe in the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ who came to extract you from Egypt and give unto you eternal life and the ultimate promise of life everlasting. Amen. God, thank you. Thank you for giving us this hard story of Moses coming so unsuccessfully initially in his attempts to lead your people out of Egypt. Lord, because we believe your word is profitable, all scripture, then we see things there that we can gain, that we can learn. We see these powerful pictures And oh God, help us to just think upon them and ask ourselves how they apply to our life. Egypt is the place of sin. And oh God, I'm so concerned for those in this room who are living in Egypt. Well, they were born there, just like these Egyptians, just just like these Israelites. But the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus, is here to take them on the path that will lead to the promised land. If that's you, dear friend, Would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today? Would you humble your heart, acknowledge your sin, believe in his death and resurrection and trust him right now from your heart? You know, some of you are very troubled by this and rightly so. The person, the representative, the very embodiment of sin itself is Satan and he wants to take charge of our lives. Oh, God, I pray for those who are enslaved by him, the God of this world. I pray for the Christians who've allowed themselves to be controlled all over again. The burdens will just get harder. The work will be harder. The joy will be less. Lord, we recognize today that sin is a deceiver, and that's why we think it's good to be here, to not trust in you, to trust all the stuff around us that doesn't give us joy, that does not bring fulfillment, does not feed our souls. And I pray that we would commit ourselves to find our truest joy in you, Lord Jesus. 
So turn us for your glory, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.